Welcome to the First Impressions Podcast, the official podcast of the Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams. Every month, Chris John Riley and myself, Martin McKay, share informal conversations with security professionals from around the globe. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone, and any sarcasm you hear is purely intentional. For more information on FIRST or this podcast, please check out FIRST.org. Wednesday of the first conference, Chris John Riley and I, Martin McKay, are talking to Maddie Stone, who is a uh, researcher at Google on Project Zero, and your talk was Zero Day in the Wild, Exploitation in 2022 so far. That's probably the scariest part of your talk is the so far number. Well, I mean, it shouldn't be scary because it is June. So <laughs> by nature, it has to only be so far. We'll see what the next six months bring. Well, I mean, just looking at some of the percentages you were talking about, right? You were saying like um, the, the the patches in, in 2021, 22% of them are resurgence of bugs from the year before and, and 25% of those in 2020. So we're seeing the same kind of thing in 2022, I'm guessing? Yeah, so we've seen 18 exploited zero days in the wild so far, or as of June 15th, and... 22% of those, so four out of the 18, are actually really close variants to zero days we saw exploited in the wild in 2021. So less than a year later, attackers were able to come back, slightly change the bugs, and still have an active zero day capability. And then on top of that, nine total of these 18, so 50%, are variants of um, previously patched bugs. So it's not like these zero-day exploits have to be so sophisticated and the attackers are having to come up with brand new things and bugs we've never seen or heard of before. They're able to just tweak previous bugs that have been published or patched and have success. But, but they've been patched. That's not the end of it? Unfortunately, I wish it was the end of it, but it's not because the patches are incomplete or not finding where that same um, vulnerability exists elsewhere in the code base. You know, or an example is they break the execution flow of the exploit that's found, but it doesn't get down to the root cause vulnerability, so you can find other paths still to trigger it. And some of those bugs were resurgence of bugs from 2016 even, right? And and. I saw memcopy on the screen, so it was hacking like it's 1999 all over again. Um, I mean, we, we obviously need to be doing a better job at these kind of things, right? If, if it, it, to put it in web parlance, right? If someone said, I found a cross-site scripting and someone said, well, I've banned script alert one, so you can't exploit this anymore. Is that kind of where we're at right now? Um, I don't know web, so I'm trying to. <laughs> fine, neither does Martin. So. He's, he's right. I don't know it either, but then again, go nobody understands what Chris is saying. Uh, yeah, so, you know, security teams are in a tough position of trying to balance the get a patch out quickly. We're super resource constrained. We're trying to, um, you know, keep secure really old software that was maybe not designed securely in the first place, and we have so many vulnerabilities all the time. Along with the, can we completely understand this bug so we make sure our patch or mitigation that's going out 
is actually sufficient. And unfortunately, we're falling more into the trap, it seems, of patching just the exploit and never being able to really dive down into what exactly is this vulnerability and how do we apply all of this information to fix all the other bugs the um, attackers may have, which are variants, since they would probably look for that pattern elsewhere in the code base or really having better regression tests because two of the cases of those nines was actually the patch was regressed. And so the same bug was then exploitable again, um, even with this largely same talk. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I liked how at the beginning of your, of your talk, you made it very clear that it's not that you expect us to ever get to a point to not have these vulnerabilities. You just want to make the use and, and exploitation of these vulnerabilities harder. If you can add one step or two steps to make it that much harder to actually get to a full exploit and, and a full compromise, that's, that's meeting your goal. Yeah, so the goal of Project Zero, my team, is make zero day hard. And in reality, that means we want incremental steps of make zero day harder. And so that looks like things of increasing the cost to the attackers for each zero day they need and increasing, as you said, the number of zero days required to have their capability they want of, say, a remote compromise to be able to install surveillance, where is sort of the common thing we're hearing in the news a lot. So one of the questions that, that came up uh, as part of your, your presentation was, you know, how much data and how much information should we share about exploits, right? So very common, there's a, a discussion about the more information you put out there about how an exploit works, the easier it's, it is to exploit it, right? Um, in the security industry, we like that information. It really helps us understand how a bug works. It helps us understand how to patch it, how to address it, how to find it in different platforms. But on the flip side of that, there's a lot of people who think that information should be you know, secret, right? That information shouldn't be out there. And the theory being it makes it harder to exploit. Yeah, and so I disagree with that premise in the sense of, first of all, when we're talking zero-day exploits, these are those exploits that are generally used by nation state attackers, um, used in you know more highly targeted types of cases. So it's a very sophisticated you know, group of entities whose whole goal is find zero day vulnerabilities and learn how or figure out a way to exploit them. And so they have hundreds and hundreds of people that can just focus on this one thing and they just need to find one way in. And so, it's common and they're able to as soon as patch tuesday comes you know for microsoft or new releases come out of chrome or firefox they have a whole team who's dedicated to just patch diffing those figuring out what were the bugs patched and then performing variant analysis or was this patch not complete and so it's not actually making it harder for those attackers because they have the information they have the resources to find it it's just making it harder on us security defenders because then we have to choose to devote those same resources to this binary and patch diffing and try to figure out what the bug is instead of be able to just act on it and help and contribute to, oh, wait, we found it quickly. Your patch wasn't sufficient. Here, this is um, what needs to happen. Or, oh, let me, I just noticed there's these other three variants. Let's get them patched as quickly as possible too. So it turns it into this there's only the vendor or only the reporter able to come up with ideas of how do we fix and mitigate this while the attackers, it was either the original one who, had, who wrote the exploit, they definitely know all the details of it and are able to come back and 
plug and play their new one, or it's other attackers whose whole job is to figure out what was patched and what's the next vulnerability we can find based on that info. And of course, companies like Google and, and the other large companies have hundreds of people that, that, no, they don't, they don't have hundreds of people. You're, you're still operating with minimal resources just like most companies are and having to make the most of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's industry-wide. So my team, we do not just focus on finding um, zero days and setting zero days in Google products. We sort of operate external to Google and look at all sort of popular consumer products. So Apple, iOS, macOS, Safari, Google Android, Chromium, Microsoft Windows, et cetera. So anything really with a large platform base that is an attack surface of interest to attackers. And so we will still report to them in the same external way as other, we report to others as well. But yeah, they're facing the same systemic issues that many other security teams are facing of not enough resources, not enough times or have not um, reasonable SLOs to really allow that variable variant analysis, and also just wrong incentive structures. You don't really hear about people getting promoted for deleting a whole bunch of bad code. <laughs> you hear about people getting promoted for writing new features, and it's not often taken into consideration what is the security or what how many, what attack surface has this new feature opened up. I mean, that brings up an important question. is like vendors out there who are selling software, who are working on the patches, their incentive is get a patch out there as soon as possible that addresses the issue they see at hand, right? And that's important, right? We need to be able to protect these users. But also, you mentioned there's a whole load of other steps that those vendors, whoever they may be, can go through to try and improve the situation in the long term. Things like variant analysis, fuzzing, looking at the exploit chains to try and fix some of those issues. Um, how can a vendor who isn't doing that get started on that ladder? Yeah, so one of the super positive things, I think, and hopeful things around this is that even incremental progress, we're going to see return on investment. If you do one patch better and more completely, that's one less bug they're able to do a variant analysis. So I think that's super promising of you can start, any steps you take um, will help. And so what my first suggestion would be is especially for anything that is told to you that it's an in the wild bug, meaning the reporter or you found it actively exploited. Make sure there's a real deep root cause analysis done. Maybe you get that patch out day three, which is awesome to protect users from the immediate threat, but your work and the urgency doesn't stop there. It's you continue with, okay, we got this out, but let's consider that a Band-Aid. Now can we fully understand what's going on? What is a better solution to this problem? Where are the other places we've made the same mistake that the attackers are probably going to, you know, just look for the same pattern again? Or why did our automated tools we use not catch this? Should we augment those and maybe they'll find additional variants? And if you get the whole exploit sample, what was the technique that the, those attackers used? Because exploiting a vulnerability is not just about the zero day. Um, as an industry, we largely find it acceptable. You got to patch the vulnerabilities when they're reported to you, but it's not quite so industry standard that the default is also mitigating exploit techniques of how that attacker decided to make the vulnerability useful. Um, so diving in to understand it and can you implement a hardening measure or a mitigation that means their previous exploit technique will no longer work with a new zero day. They actually have to not only find a new zero day to have a 
new attack, uh, capability, but they also have to create a whole new exploit technique as well. And you gave some very good technical details about those patches that were either incomplete or were you use the word resurgence, meaning that they, they came back because the same code that had created the original was either recreated or somehow rolled back into the software. And that's the part that, that scares me the most. Is not Yes, a patch that takes three different iterations to get it right is bad. But when you're reintroducing those same problems again, six months, a year, six or seven years after you've patched them, that's what scares me the most in some of these companies. Yeah, and it's really hard when you start to think about that. A lot of these code bases we used, we, in, at least in my head, and maybe this is me getting older in the industry, I still think of them kind of as new things. But if we think about like Chrome and Safari and how many, you know, decades that <laughs> they've been around now and how, you know, some of it is legacy software at this point. Um, it's hard to maintain and understand what all of those choices that were made before. So one of the examples of sort of the resurgence of a bug, I published a blog post about it a few weeks ago, and it was actually, he wasn't my teammate then, but my teammate went ahead and reported the bug back in 2013. They patched it. Um, actually, this was a great case where he reported a variant of it and they patched this variant, which ended up being the one in the wild as well. They did this great comprehensive patch. In 2016, there was then a refactoring that happened and the bug was then regressed. And then in 2022, it's disclosed that this has been exploited in the wild. And so it's one of those things if you're looking and trying to understand what could have happened and it's, it was giant commits of refactoring that, you know, it wasn't clear or for some reason, you know, whoever was doing the refactoring didn't realize that this was actually introducing another use after free and that ref pointer, um, reference counter pointer was necessary or it's the system issues of having to turn around reviews super quickly and do large commits, um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's often, and as someone who's looked at large code bases, it's, it's often impossible for a security engineer to be Here's, here's six million lines of code. Can you go through and tell me where the bugs are, right? So having that tooling in place to really validate that a fix is still there, right? And also find other fixes or find other issues that, that follow the same kind of pathway is very, very important. And it's the only way we can really scale out because if we are expecting people to read and understand and do this manually, we're, we're fighting a losing battle. Yeah, but I, and I also do think that there is a manual component that so many of these platform security teams that are responsible for triaging volumes or um, many people on that team don't really have any offensive experience. They've never written an exploit for the product they're securing. And that kind of knowledge of whether it's a rotation within the team or some sort of way to help people get experience, I think it's such a big multiplier in the sense of realizing just how easy or hard something is and starting to have that view of, oh, I thought this wasn't exploitable, but now that I've seen what common ways to exploit are, oh yeah, now I know it, it actually is. So I also wanted to come back to, to one of the things you mentioned about making it harder for the bad guys to burn their zero days, right? I mean, 
you know making them more valuable because you're removing a lot of the ease of creating the next one right if you burn this on 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 some uh program or you 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 set up a watering hole attack which i think was your example you know they don't know that the next one is just going to fall out of a tree right it's going to take them three or four months to come up with that new chain so they're going to use those less freely yeah and that's really the goal and i know that while i focus on zero days almost exclusively if we're looking at the scheme of security attacks yes most people will say zero day attacks and exploit use is highly targeted and very selective if you compare it to say you know phishing or business comp compromises and money um, focused attacks but to me as you said as long as attackers are still willing to perform a watering hole attack where they're, they're infecting every person who um, visits their site, and that means people like me can then learn about that site and go get it and get their zero days, that means they're not precious enough. They're confident enough of the next one they'll find um, that they're not using it as selectively. And so that's that sort of double benefit and why we go for it of if we never expect that there will be no zero days. We expect that attackers will always be able to find one. But if it becomes less and less of a cost-effective solution, um, that they find one but realize, oh, I have to hold on to this until it's really, really important because I don't know when the next will or if I'll get budgeting you know, to buy one of these again. That's what we're looking for because then the use and the number of people targeted um, ends up becoming less and less. So Maddie, you had a lot of great and very technical content, but what did you want folks to know that we've failed to ask you about so far? I think the biggest thing is that zero days are not this super sophisticated, unstoppable type of attack. It is something that right now is very tractable. And there is a clear solution, which I don't think we get very often in security here. So focusing more on better patching, of supporting your security teams to be able to do further root cause analysis, um, having people on the team who are able to take a few weeks to dive into where else may these, co may these code patterns exist, working with the reporters who send you vulnerabilities to be like, hey, this is how I intend to patch your bug before you ever go through all the effort to respin it. Um, and they're coming back and able to help talk you through or point out a really obvious thing you might have missed. Um, I think that's the exciting part is it's tractable and we'll see the investment, um, but we need to do it because of the impact on society and who they use these against. Great. Well, uh, we've been talking to Maddie Stone, security researcher at Google Project Zero. Thank you very much for taking the time to, uh, to talk to us today and thank you very much for the presentation. Thank you all so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the First Impressions podcast and thanks to this week's guest. You can find Chris John Riley on Twitter at Chris John Riley, all one word. You can find me, Martin McKay, on Twitter at MCKEAY. And you can find the first organization at first.org, F I R S T D O T O R G. You can also find more information about FIRST and the First Impressions podcast at first.org. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.